This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a second year doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford. I'm based in the UK. I study rumors of epidemic disease in 17th century North America. So essentially I study how people thought about and spoke about diseases. I'm particularly interested in the role of disease in colonial contexts. I'm Maya. I'm American, but a permanent resident of Canada. I have a master's in public health, and my work focuses on the sexual and reproductive health of adolescents, infectious disease, and monitoring and evaluation. My primary area of focus is Sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm extremely interested in reflections of colonialism in disease and public health. So today we're talking about anthrax. And oh boy, is this going to be a wild ride. <laughs> I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm excited. Do you want to start us off? Let's go. Okay, so these little bacterial spores called anthrax were discovered, identified, and named in 1850. And it's actually one of the first bacteria that was shown to really be the cause of a disease. And that was done by Robert Koch using germ theory. And he tested infection in animals and identified the life cycle of the bacteria. In 1881, his rival Louis Pasteur, who we all know and love, went a step further and developed a vaccine for anthrax for animals. This disease has been called all sorts of things, but the name seems to come from the Greek word for coal because the lesions and sores that patients get turn black. Um, and it was actually first called anthrax in an English translation in 1398 of a book that was written in 1240, which was called on the properties of things. Super specific. I know. And I only say this because it was written by this guy named Bartholomeus. And I, when I read it, I just felt so inspired. I was like, I wish my name was Bartholomeus. And I was writing the first ever encyclopedia called On the Properties of Things. I just, <laughs> and it's like 19 volumes of just stuff. And then wow. I went down a whole rabbit hole about this guy. Okay, so anthrax is a bacteria called Bacillus anthracis. And they look like little rods under a microscope and for a bacteria they're actually quite big um, and these spores are found in dirt and they typically infect animals most likely domesticated farm animals like cows or sheep and they obviously also infect humans although it's much less likely the spores are inactive in soil and then they only activate when they get into a body so basically the bacteria gets in through your nose or mouth or skin and they activate because of the sugar and all the other things in your system that they can feed on. And then once they activate, they release these toxins which shut down your cells, the immune system, and eventually the rest of your body. And just a fun aside, and I use the fun word fun very loosely, the, t the chemicals that the bacteria emit separately are not dangerous for you. It's just that the three that it emits all together become a toxin. It's like each of them on their own is not actually poisonous to humans. Neat. Fun. It has this really long range of infection. So you can sort of start to see the impact of the disease from a few hours after you come in contact with it to a few weeks to a month. There are four kinds of infection and symptoms and treatment vary depending on type. So that's actually really interesting that depending on the way you come in contact with the bacteria, you will exhibit different symptoms, which is kind of crazy. Cutaneous anthrax is when the spores get in your skin, usually through a cut, and that's the most common, but fortunately also the least dangerous form of anthrax because with treatment, you're usually fine, and without treatment, it has a low 20% death rate. Symptoms include rash, blisters, sores that get black in the center, and swollen lymph glands. Then there's gastrointestinal anthrax, which does what it sounds like, and it comes from infected or undercooked meat. And you get like a really swoll swollen abdomen. You could faint, you get fever, vomiting, swelling, all sorts of delicious things. And without treatment, 80% of people die. And with treatment, 40% die. So not an ideal outlook either way. <laughs> then there's inhalation anthrax, which is typically the most dangerous. 
And that leads to people coughing up blood, having trouble breathing, get meningitis because it affects your immune system. Then you go into shock and it's fatal 90% of the time, which is like crazy high. Wow. And finally, there's injection anthrax, which is new. So that's also really fun. And that's mostly found amongst heroin users. So it's unclear if anthrax needle or in the heroin itself. Um, because studies are really still being done on this. It's relatively recent and pretty much isolated within Europe. But it creates this irritation at the injection site, blisters, necrosis. Depending on how deep the anthrax gets into your system before treatment, you can get organ failure and die. And I was reading an academic article about it, which was full of pictures, and I didn't realize. And I would not recommend looking for it because it is... Not great. And a big part of the treatment is just cutting out wherever you injected it. So that was really horrifying. Even the historical images, even though painted, were also really gross. So I don't even want to think about what the photographs look like. It reminded me at several points of what you hear about flesh eating bacteria. Weirdly, yes. And that's like that the fact that it turns black, too. I think one thing that both Angel and I will talk about is, is that humans decided to weaponize anthrax because it's so dangerous when inhaled which has led to all these instances of even more threatening forms of it but i guess fortunately unlike other diseases we've talked about so far this disease doesn't transmit from person to person in fact it typically comes from animals so once an animal is infected it sheds bacterial spores in its feces that insects can help spread from animal to animal which widens the reach of an outbreak but there's just no evidence that anthrax is transmitted from person to person. However, it's slightly possible that skin lesions can be contagious because if there's anthrax in the flesh um, of either an animal or a human and you come into close contact with it and then it gets either in your skin, stomach, or you inhale it, then you could get sick. But another really creepy thing about this disease is that it can survive basically in stasis and in extreme conditions for a really long amount of time. In 2016, we had the biggest natural outbreak in recent history where 100 people infected and really sadly, 2,600 reindeer died. So we're sad about the reindeer, but not about the people. Okay, it was just a lot of reindeer. (laughs) We're obviously also sad about the people. So this was up in Siberia and they had unusually warm temperatures for the year. So the snow melted in a way that it hadn't for a long time. And it revealed the carcasses of a reindeer that had died of anthrax in 1968. What? I know. And the spores from that dead animal then infected the other reindeer and (gasps) then from the reindeer to the people. And the Russian biomilitary force had to be sent in to clean it up. And by it, I mean the reindeer so that it didn't keep spreading, right? Because if the reindeer got sick and then just like ran off, then their bodies could also do more. So it's it's a little bit of like a weird visual of like this very highly trained Russian military force going and like rounding up reindeer. <laughs> uh, but they did this because unless it's cleaned up, it's likely to keep recurring. So in Kenya, there's a national park with lots of wildlife that sees frequent outbreaks And they all happen in the same location. So they have had outbreaks in 1973, 79, 82, 86, 2011, 2014, 2015, 2017, because it's just sort of like there. And so once it's unearthed in some unfortunate manner, it will reinfect animals. Anthrax is still typically found in agricultural areas um, and largely those that are still developing. So South America, Africa, Asia. But there are still occurrences in Europe. There haven't been almost any naturally occurring cases in the States for a long time. But because of its relationship to animals, it's more common amongst people who work closely with those animal products. So that can include people working with animal hides. So one thing that's actually been noted is that people who make drums out of animal skins are actually at higher risk of getting anthrax poisoning because the spores are like caught in the dried hides. Depending on the way that you get anthrax, so whichever of those four forms of anthrax you get infected with, you test it using a variety of measures. So a chest x-ray, if you inhaled it, um, a lesion swab, a blood test, there's a couple different methods. If there's a good reason to believe that a person was exposed before you can get the results back from a lab test, you immediately start them on antibiotics. Penicillin was the main form for a while. Now it's typically Cipro, but it depends on the type of infection. And that's an important fact to know for later. So 
pinpointed in your brain. Um, they have also approved the vaccine that now exists for humans as a type of treatment. So if you get sick, they will typically start you on the round of the vaccine as well. And there are also antitoxins available to treat the toxin that anthrax releases. But any type of treatment is so lengthy, mostly because of that really long incubation time. So you typically take the antibiotics for 60 days, which is so long for a treatment of antibiotics. And the three shots of the vaccine are also over the course of 60 days. So that's an overview of our little spores. Can you imagine having to take antibiotics for 60 days? It wrecks you. Like how many how many yogurt pills would you have to consume <laughs> to balance that out? All the probiotics. Ooh. Tell me about what life was like before antibiotics. Okay, so for the historical section today, we're going to do something a little bit different. So instead of uh, focusing on a particular instance of anything, I'm going to give you a survey mostly because I was so excited to find so many uh, examples from antiquity. Um, and considering that this is a disease that I basically had never heard of before. Right! Like, out of the U.S. Postal Service context, like, I had no idea that anthrax was a disease slash bacteria rather than a poisonous compound that was created in a lab. Like, I totally thought it was synthetic. So to have so much documentation about this historical disease and to have never heard about it before just like blew my mind so I got really excited. <laughs> so far from being modern, anthrax actually has ancient origins possibly originating in Egypt or Mesopotamia. Chinese texts document anthrax-like out outbreaks 5,000 years ago. So if you follow our Instagram you'll have seen some of these already. They are illustrated texts and they give you all the different examples of anthrax and what it would look like on different parts of your body. I love them. They make it look like a really bad pimple. Weirdly. Okay, this is getting gross. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've talked about so much grosser than this, but for some reason this is really getting to me. Is it the word spores? I think so. Like, this is really reminiscent of a lot of uh, zombie apocalypse fiction that I've consumed in the past. True. That is fair. So some theorize that anthrax is actually... Uh, one or two of the ten plagues of Egypt. So in chapter nine of the, bu the book of Exodus, uh, you've got the fifth plague, which is the death of livestock, and the sixth plague, which is boils, which are visited on Egypt. And I've got a cute little quote from the Bible, which is probably the first <laughs> time I've ever purposefully <laughs> quoted from the Bible, but okay. <clears throat> you ready? Mm -hmm. Behold, I'm so sorry, I cannot keep a straight face. <laughs> it was good. The behold was just very fulsome. It had gravitas, it did. didn't it? <laughs> behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous moraine, which is a new word that I learned and that people kept using in all of the scholarship. A moraine is a plague, usually um, an animal-based plague. I love that historical context. Anthrax is probably in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and, and before. And writings from ancient Greece and Rome depict something that resembles anthrax. So scholars say that it appears in Homer's Iliad, which is roughly 700 BC. Scholars also suggest that the plague of Athens, which went on from 430 to 427 BC, was actually an epidemic of inhalation anthrax. So back to the naming, you'll remember that Maya told us that the term anthrax is from Greek, and it is. So the Greek word anthrakites, meaning coal-like, refers to the black bits um, in the boils which is like a super verbose way of saying <laughs> the boils get black, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. therefore coal. Great. So we talked about moraine, which is an infectious disease affecting cattle or other animals. In the archaic or humorous sense, it refers to a plague or an epidemic or a crop blight. And its origin is Middle English from the old French morine, from the Latin mori, which means to die. Why would that be humorous? I'm not sure, but the Oxford English Dictionary seems to, say, seems to think okay. so, but I don't know. Anthrax also appears in Virgil's Georgics. Uh, Virgil lived from 70 to 19 BC uh, and is most famous for the Aeneid. But the Georgics are four uh, verses about agriculture. 
The Third Georgic is about animal husbandry and contains the best ancient description of the moraine of Noricum, so a plague, an animal plague that took place in the Eastern Alps. And the quote is as follows. After a burning fever had raged through an animal's veins and shriveled its flesh, the fluids again became abundant and virtually dissolved the bones. Good lord. Right? <laughs> it's graphic. There was some more from, uh, from that Georgic, but I chose to not include that because it got a bit gross. There's a really bad description of an ox dying from anthrax. Anyway, I'll let you go look at that if you want to. Maya, Maya's shaking her head. No. I do not want to. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Virgil documents its appearance in many animals, so not just sheep, but also cattle, horses, dogs, marine animals, snakes, and other domestic and wild animals. But most importantly, what Virgil does is he highlights the hardiness of the infecting source and the potential for, for tr transmission from animal to human. And in his Georgic, he refers to pelts of diseased animals being tainted and useless, and people just did not even dare to, to touch those garments. And if anyone wore them, they would eventually be, and I quote, attacked by inflamed papules and a foul exudate, which sounds super fun. So I'm going to skip from Virgil to the 18th century for a second. <laughs> the clinical description of anthrax dates to Marais in 1752 and Fournier in 1769. Uh, and before this, you only really see it described in historical accounts. The disease continues to affect both humans and animals through the Middle Ages, but it's only really clinically examined in the mid-18th century. So I found a super interesting article that you should check out about the early characterization of anthrax by a group of French observers. So they were working from 1762 to 1780 during a period of what is called epizootics, which is another fun new word that I learned while I was researching this. So like an epidemic, but of animals. So much fun vocab today. Right? <laughs> Moraines, epizootics. So you can use that as an adjective or you can also use it as a noun. So, so for the first time during this period, so 1769 to 1780, anthrax is being distinguished from a number of other diseases that devastated livestock populations. So that's like rinderpest and foot and mouth disease. So rinderpest, if you've never heard of it before, is related to measles. It's highly fatal, highly contagious, and it affects cattle. It's a good name, too. Rinderpest. It sounds really, I don't know, like foreboding, which it should yeah. be because it's scary. 1709 ushers in a series of disastrous cattle epizootics and economic problems um, stemming from that. Uh, so we've got Rinderpest from 1709 to 1713, and towards the tail end of that uh, epizootic, you've got anthrax appearing in 1712 and then 1757 to 1763, 1774 to 1780 and 1786 to 1793, and 200 million cattle died of rinderpest alone during this period. Oh my god, the 1700s were not a good time to be a cow. Or a human. Or a human, or... <laughs> It's just not a good time. <laughs> it's not a good time for anybody. So yeah, that's just rinderpest. 200 million cattle. We don't actually know how many died of foot and mouth disease or of anthrax. So if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend that article that I was talking about by David M. Morins, which is from 2003 in the American Journal of Public Health, and we're going to link that in the show notes. So Morins is arguing that the characterization of anthrax was crucial to the development of early germ theory of contagion, which isn't actually accepted until more than a century later. In the 18th century, half the sheep in Europe were destroyed by these concurrent penzootics. Um, and in inhalation anthrax becomes known as wool sorted disease in Victorian England, which is actually a misnomer because more often anthrax was a result of contact with goat or alpaca hair rather than wool. Really? Yeah. Um, in the 19th century, physicians were describing cases of anthrax, but they were pretty often not able to diagnose it. So they, they didn't know the cause of anthrax, but they had noticed a link between the disease and the animal hair industry, hence that misnomer, the wool sorter's disease. In 1877, Robert Koch illustrated and grew Bacillus anthracis and injected animals with the bacteria. 
describing how the injected bacteria cause the disease. And this is something that Maya talked about right at the beginning of the episode. So as she said, he determined the life cycle of anthrax and demonstrated a causal relationship between that specific microorganism and the disease of anthrax. So if you tuned into our last episode on cholera, you'll remember the saga of Jon Snow and the Broad Street water pump, and Maya and I both got really excited about that one. (laughs) And you'll also remember that Jon Snow had a huge problem getting people to accept that cholera was a waterborne illness. And he first published that view in 1849, and the cholera epidemic happened in 1852. So Robert Koch is coming up with his postulates demonstrating this causal relationship between the microorganism and the disease of anthrax only 25 years later. And then in 1881, Louis Pasteur built on the work of Koch to prove how anthrax was spread and how it made people and animals sick. And he developed a vaccine that he administered with huge success to animals. Am I right that I read that this was like the first bacteria that they actually managed to follow this life cycle for and be like, look, you find bacteria, it makes people sick, A to B. Yeah, that was anthrax. Yeah, that's wild. I had no idea. Right? You'd think we would have heard of it, especially given how pivotal that was for, for germ theory of disease. Right? Like literally proving that microorganisms are causing disease. Yeah. What? How did I not know it was anthrax? Isn't that so cool? <laughs> it played a massive role in the development of modern medicine. I love it. I love it too. In 1937, Max Stern creates the anthrax live spore vaccine for animals, which is still used in animals in most countries. So this becomes routinely introduced in animal populations, leading to a decline of cases of anthrax in humans. And Maya's going to talk about the most famous appearance of anthrax, which is uh, the 2001 letters. So that's going to be fun. You were saying this before, and I'll say it again, like, there were so many books that I wanted to read for this episode because I just know, I knew nothing about anthrax before this, and I got really excited about it. And the book that I wanted to read the most that I couldn't get access to is called Death in a Small Package. I aspire to write a book with a name that that's good. That's good. If anyone wants to mail us any of the books that we mention, just DM us on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work something out. Okay, so... Present day context. Yeah, let's see. Okay, I'm going to preface the whole present day context by saying that I also knew very little about anthrax except for this one modern day mention of it. And I also fully thought it was like a poison, some kind of poison or man-made thing. And so the more I read, the more I found books that I wanted to read more, the more I learned, the more I was like, I'm just writing a spy novel now. Like, this is a wild ride. And I feel like everybody needs to be prepared for that. And also for those who have no idea what I'm talking about in terms of the 2001 letter attack, I'm going to get to that. So starting in the early 1900s, various armies, various countries started deploying anthrax against each other. And governments started developing new strains that mix anthrax with things like plasma that makes it even more deadly and easy to spread. And that's just this example of how once people realized how toxic it was, it almost immediately began to get weaponized. We were talking about advances in it with Louis Pasteur in the 1880s. It's only a few decades after that that people start fully using it as a form of bioterrorism. And it's it's a really easy way to distribute something that is essentially invisible when, you know, you put this powder into the air. So it moved from something that affected people working in agriculture, working with animal skins, into something that could be used as a for mass destruction. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of its weaponization in the modern age because I just thought this was so crazy. So a really early one is in Japan. Anthrax was typically called Agent N at the time, and it was tested by the Japanese on their prisoners of war. Um, This is definitely one of the hidden atrocities of the 1930s. I I honestly had no idea that that was happening. In the UK, during World War II, they made something called cattle cakes, which sounds way <laughs> cuter than it actually is. They are little cakes of anthrax that they were going to drop on Germany to ruin their food supply, but they decided not to. And it's because in 1942, the British carried out anthrax testing on an island called Grenard Island, which made it totally uninhabitable for any mammals until they started doing purposeful cleanup in 1990 that's 50 years later and there's a very very strange video of them 
dropping an anthrax bomb that I have linked in the show notes, and it is extremely creepy. But basically, because they weaponized the anthrax so much, the island was so contaminated that they determined that it would make German cities uninhabitable for decades to follow. So they decided not to use it. Okay, something that I didn't include in my historical context, which I probably should have, is that in the 18th century, governments were already starting to freak out about anthrax and starting to try and clean up the various areas that that were being affected. That's wild. I don't know. It's it's so wild. Like Louis the 14th sending out his best men to to clean up this like grazing area for sheep and try to decontaminate it even before they properly understood how to do that or why they should do that. Yeah, what was their strategy? Like, how did they clean it up? Kill them all, incinerate the bodies and try to just like make sure that make sure that they had eliminated everything that could potentially harm this environment. So for them, that would have been like either miasma or some sort of other contaminant mm-hmm. in the environment because they were like environmental causes for everything. And another fun fact, the Pope sent his personal physician to go check out what was going on with these animals. Whoa. Right? That is wild. <laughs> and I mean, the thing is, when they were doing this in World War II, they basically had the same strategy, right? Like when they decided not to burn the cattle cakes, they or not to drop them, they burned them. And when they tested it on all these poor sheep on that island, the, who obviously all immediately died, they also just burned those. And then they essentially roped off the island, paid the owner 500 pounds, and were like, okay, we'll be back in 50 to 60 years. Thanks for letting us run this experiment. <laughs> but it was so contaminated that this group of scientists, some of whom were really closely linked with a Scottish independence movement, went and stole soil from the island and made these like drop packets of contaminated soil and left them in front of like military bases, which by the way was called Operation Dark Harvest. Do you see why this feels like a spy thriller? Oh my god. (laughs) This is totally a spy thriller. It's amazing. So eventually that instigated the British government to actually start doing a more effective cleanup and they sprayed it with, you know, chemicals that they knew would kill it. And you actually can go to it now, although unsurprisingly many people do not visit this island. The Soviet Union also experimented with anthrax, and they had their own island called Vorozhdenya Island, where they stockpiled and tested all sorts of biological weapons, except this island had people living on it on a military base, like full (laughs) families, fathers, mothers, and children. And they had all these awful like smallpox leaks where there was like a 1986 smallpox outbreak on this island and improperly stored anthrax. And it just is a living nightmare. Um, But after the fall of the USSR, they evacuated the island and they've been sort of burying anthrax and decontaminating things since then. In 1979, the USSR also had this issue where some of their stockpile, which, by the way, should have been destroyed because everybody had signed a bioweapons treaty in the midst of the Cold War, um, was released in aerosol form accidentally in Sverdlovsk, and it was carried downwind, and it infected 100 people and lots of cattle. And the KGB covered this up for years, and it was this whole scandal, and the U.S. tried to get in and investigate it because it was a breach of their treaty, and everybody said, no, no, they died of something else. And again, it was lots of Cold War spy thriller stuff. But everybody knew what happened, and eventually they were able to write all the scientific articles proving that basically if you look at the way the wind was blowing, only people that were in this tiny channel downwind of the factory got sick. And after Boris Yeltsin took charge in 92, they finally admitted that they were at fault. So those are just a couple of crazy anthrax examples that have to do with biological warfare. However, weaponizing the bacteria doesn't seem to have actually made it more symptomatically dangerous. Like it was already pretty hazardous for your health. That seems to have remained the same over most of the strains. So let's talk about the big one. The 2001 anthrax attacks. And this is just, it's a wild ride. It's a lengthy ride. I'm going to try and focus on the disease component and not on all these conspiracy theories that are maybe not even conspiracy theories. But bear with me because some of it is just too juicy to leave out. So a little bit of important context. We're in the United States. It's 2001. September 11th had literally just happened. One of the worst terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. So obviously everyone is really shaken, but also really paranoid about terrorism in at home. And 
it also causes a big flood in Islamophobia. I think most of us listening remember what that time was like. So only a week after 9-11, a set of envelopes containing anthrax are mailed out across the United States. They believe that this first round of letters was sent to ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, and the New York Post. So obviously targeting news agencies. And I say they believe because people threw out the letters after they read them, so they could only do it by figuring out who got sick with anthrax. There was another set of envelopes posted in the second week of October, and some of those letters went to two Democratic senators. And this is when we start seeing postal workers and employees in the targeted buildings getting sick because the contents of the envelopes are leaking because they're small spores. Uh, a total of 22 people got infected and five died. So these envelopes had misleading addresses on them. One of them had their return address as fourth grade classrooms so that people would think it was like a kid's letter to a senator. And all of the letters inside had some variation on the theme of, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. Are you scared? Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Which, given the recent terror attacks, seemed like it was an intentional way of creating more panic. And you will note that whoever wrote it wrote, take penicillin now, which, as we talked about at the beginning, is one of the most immediate treatments for anthrax. So an interesting and strange mixed message. Also, penicillin was spelled wrong, but you can go look at the letters on our Instagram. So the first round of letters contained this less pure form of anthrax that looked kind of like brown and clumpy. But the second round of envelopes had this form of anthrax that was highly refined, looked like a dry white powder. And that's sort of how we see it portrayed in popular culture now is this white powder in envelopes. And I think that's why I thought it was a poison because when I think white powder, I think like arsenic or whatever. So while anthrax, because it's naturally occurring, is actually pretty simple to find and extract, this level of like refined, dried anthrax would have required significant expertise and really specific tools. And it's also worth noting that most scientists were used to working with a wet spore because it made it easier to sort of control and it was active so you could measure it. But the fact that this was dried and at such a high intensity meant that it would float up into the air and be super lethal, but it also wasn't very common for people working with it because we had signed this bioweapons treaty. But wouldn't that be so much riskier to handle, even even on the on the sender's end? Like, yes. to pack something that volatile and that lethal that could be airborne so easily into something as as ridiculous as like an envelope there is there such a yeah. thing as a totally sealed envelope that seems like no more risk than reward potentially so you raise a couple of really interesting points that are good to think about as we go on with this crazy conspiracy story one is that the pieces of paper in the envelope were folded using something called a chemist's fold which is what they use when they package powders so until open like it's tiny spores but until opened it's like safe-ish and the other thing is that, yes, when you are handling that fine of a powder, some particles of it are going to get everywhere. Keep that in mind. Okay. So once this happened and people were starting to get sick with something that was so highly toxic and it was immediately after 9-11, the FBI, of course, put together this tax task force and they called it Amerithrax. <laughs> that is the most American thing I've ever heard. I know. Like, welcome back to my spy thriller. It's just, <laughs> what? So this Amerithrax <laughs> investigation. It's like a combination between a thorax and a Lorax. It's, it's bad. <laughs> oh, and yet still somehow it managed to be one of the biggest investigations undertaken by the FBI. And none of those thousands of people thought maybe we should name it something else. But, okay, whatever. By 2002, this investigation... <laughs> Dark harvest, so much better. So much better. The British have always had a knack for that kind of thing, so... Okay, so this is the end of 2001. By 2002, the investigation is focused largely on this one scientist named Dr. Stephen Hatfill. And he's worked with the U.S. Army Center for Infectious Disease. He is familiar with the general idea as a brilliant scientist. And they are so intense about investigating this guy that when they eventually clear him, he actually sues the FBI and wins because they were <laughs> so aggressive in their investigation. Then 
The investigation turns to this guy named Dr. Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins also worked with the U.S. Army in infectious diseases, but he had basically dedicated his 30-year career to developing a more effective anthrax vaccine. Part of the reason they started investigating Dr. Ivins is that he was the leading expert in this. And so they used his advice. They asked him questions about it. They asked him the different things that they could do. And one of the things he said is you can sequence the DNA of this anthrax and figure out which strain it's from. So they sequenced the anthrax and they discovered that it was from a strain called Ames, which, fun tidbit, is named after Ames, Iowa, but it isn't actually from Ames, Iowa. Someone just mislabeled the packaging. So this strain is used in 16 laboratories around the country, and one of those laboratories was Dr. Ivan's. Now, a little sidebar from the actual anthrax. Poor Dr. Ivan's had a history of poor mental health, and there are all these records of him sort of harassing young women, threatening to bring poison to events to hurt people, and some other issues. Um, issues. <laughs> some issues. <laughs> However, many of those accusations were leveled at him by a former therapist and social worker of his, who, frankly, in retrospect, seems a little bit less than reliable and had kind of let him down as a, as a mental health service provider, arguably which made him even more vulnerable. And by other accounts of the people he worked with for many years, he was brilliant, if eccentric, and he did a lot of weird things during the investigation that did not make him look good. For example, he self-tested all of the work units for contaminant particles. And that's obviously supposed to be done by a third party, so you can't cover anything up. Um, he would lock himself away in his laboratory alone for hours with samples. And when he was asked to give slants, which are very specific samples from different strains, to the FBI, he seemed to be intentionally doing it wrong, corrupting the samples, except he was the one that told the FBI what protocol they should use in order to identify strains and get good samples. That also seems like poor practice if the FBI are asking their suspect about what protocols they need to yeah. use. Yeah, so they, they asked him before he became a suspect. Uh. And then as the investigation progressed, they were like, actually, maybe we should look at the guy that knows the most in the world about, about anthrax. But when asked about it, he has explanations. Like, not all of them are good, but he seems to have reasoning. And there's things like uh, one of his lab assistants came to him and was like, I'm really scared that I accidentally got some anthrax in the air. Like, I didn't properly do this one job. And I'm worried that there might be contamination or that I might get sick. And so he cleaned the workspace for her instead of, like, reporting it and firing her. So arguably him cleaning things and testing things might have been him trying to be a good boss if not a very law-abiding one. There's not there's some extenuating factors, but there's not a lot. So in his private emails, Ivans talks about being worried that he's depressed, that he's paranoid. He talks about how being around women that he works with makes him nervous, even though he is married. And after a particularly intense interview with the FBI, even the people interviewing got worried about his mental health and strongly recommended he start taking his antidepressants again. All of this stuff to say that like, yeah, he doesn't look great. But to counterbalance that, if I was under intense investigation for a terrorist attack and I had to go through like a 12-hour interview with the FBI, I don't think my mental health would look good either. I would also probably be depressed and anxious. And if you had a history of that, you can see how that might act, make you act weirdly. I mean, is there really a good way to act when you're a suspect for any crime? I mean, no. arguably. I mean, he definitely does a lot of stuff that looks extra bad, but, <laughs> <laughs> but no. Um, okay, so at this point, we've reached 2007. It's been six years since the envelopes were sent. And all this stuff is becoming clearer. Tons of people had access to that particular strain of anthrax. Ivan's is under 24-hour surveillance. Which just, again, that sucks, especially if you are paranoid and have poor mental health. In November of 2007, the FBI finally came out and was like, listen, we're very suspicious of you and we would like to examine your house. And they didn't find anything related to anthrax. They did find a bunch of weird letters, semi-threatening, to both politicians and the media, including the places that had letters sent to them. They found a bunch of wigs. He admitted to having a bag of women's clothing that he liked to dress up in. Which is not the crime he's being accused of, so... No, not related. The same day that this all happened, his clearance to the lab that he had worked at for 30 years, and it was like his life was revoked, 
which by all accounts sent him into this like spiral and cut him off from his friends and made the people that had stuck by him really suspicious of him. And there's so many weird spy story undertones to this. Like the um, the letters in the mail that were sent might have a code in them based on like how they were bolded. And Ivan's threw out a book that contained a section on codes when they were investigating him. He also revealed that he had a weird obsession with the sorority house Kappa Kappa Gamma, including their inter-sorority codes. Also, again, he was clearly a weird dude. Like he was actively obsessed with this college sorority for like several decades because a girl in college from that sorority rejected him. But I digress. Comments like these made by Ivans in interviews started escalating at the beginning of 2008. Kind of seemed like he was losing the plot. And then he killed himself by overdosing on Tylenol. I don't know why, because like in some ways, this Ivans person strikes me as something out of criminal minds. But I also feel really bad for him. So that's exactly my takeaway. Like, he's clearly very smart, but also very eccentric, very awkward. He didn't have a good childhood, none of which is an excuse for anything. But it also kind of seems like he was, I don't want to say set up to be the bad guy, because it also seems like he could be really culpable. But there's also a lot of question marks. So I'm guessing from the way you're speaking about this that there's no conclusive answer no and that's exactly the crazy part of this at this point him killing himself felt like an admission of guilt but frankly there was never a smoking gun and as time progressed it seemed more and more plausible that he could simply have been a very peculiar man who was put under extreme pressure by a very intensive investigation by the fbi people pointed out that making that much dried anthrax would have taken months and months of hard work and there were plenty of scientists that had access to these materials remember that specific one strain of anthrax was in 16 different laboratories around the country and like you said yes this floating spore affects everything it touches it gets everywhere and yet his office his lab and his home had no traces of the anthrax in fact the FBI was actually never able to prove where that strain was cultured. The FBI's theory is that because Ivan's life work was making this anthrax vaccine, he committed the attack to make sure that there would be enough interest and funding in maintaining his program. But there's really no evidence from Ivan's, from his emails, from his coworkers that really suggests that that's I mean, true. We both know a lot of ambitious people, and this seems a little bit extreme. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Oh, and most people, even at the time, they suggested that if he was responsible at all, he could not have acted alone and he would have needed to have a partner and that it was evident that there was a partner involved. So even if he was guilty, there's arguably another person or persons out there that are also guilty. And as of now, the case is closed. A scientific panel went back and reviewed the evidence in 2011 And they basically found that they could not conclusively attribute the attacks to him based on the science. And the FBI said, okay, yes, the science wasn't conclusive. But if you add the science to all the other weird things going on around him, that proves guilt. And so that's sort of where it's up for debate is that even with our new technology that we have, even with the ability to sequence this, every scientist who works with anthrax takes these splices of the disease and changes it and modifies it and works with it in order to run their experiments and so while you know that it's all based on this Ames strain there's all these different versions of it i mean in those 16 labs with four or five scientists each who are working with anthrax there could be hundreds and hundreds of different kinds and the fbi's collection was known to be incomplete and so there's still all these really big question marks and there's a lot that i've said that made him seem guilty but the science around working with this anthrax never really took us to a place where we could say for sure that the person responsible or persons have been arrested and tried for the crime. And that is the crazy story of the anthrax letters. That was crazy. crazy. Wow. You promised me a wild ride and I think I just got it. And as a fun side note, Robert Mueller was the head of the FBI during this investigation and was the person like directly responsible for leading Amerithrax and like directing it and was very focused on it. So fun little aside there. Which I'm sure gives so much fodder to conspiracy theories, right? Oh, yeah. Anyway, another fun conspiracy tidbit is that one of the terrorists who is on the plane, like one of the hijackers in 9-11, 
presented at the hospital like a week before they flew the plane with anthrax poisoning. Whoa. What does it mean? <laughs> I don't know what to do with that I information. Know. It was so close to 9-11 and it was such a big deal and it happened in the US where everyone's like, we got this, don't worry, that I think it made everyone so aware of like how scary bioterrorism can be. So people were already on high alert, people were grieving. Yeah. And they're, they're capitalizing on, on much older fears as well that have existed for ages. So like, I'm gonna give you a little look into my doctoral thesis because reading up on anthrax, learning about it for the first time made me, um, made me find a lot of links between my own work and this topic, which I think will be really helpful to me, actually. So it's kind of cool to do something in parallel that feels like pr productive procrastination <laughs> and then have it feed back into my actual chapter. So the bulk of my work is about rumor. I've talked a bit about that before, but essentially what I do is I look at how information about epidemic diseases travels around on the frontier of the French Empire in the 17th century. So I look at mostly French Canada. So I look at what was the effect of this information, who was spreading it around, and why. Um, and this is kind of coming out of a long legacy of fear of biological warfare and scholarship on biological warfare. The fear that someone is going to intentionally infect you with some sort of disease is really common in the early modern period, but it's actually super unlikely mm -hmm. before very recently. And there are a lot of compelling arguments against the intentional spreading of disease in the early modern period. Fun vocab that you've learned in a past <laughs> episode. And one of the problems with saying that people are intentionally spreading disease during this period is that nobody actually understood disease well enough to come up with effective treatments or to prevent their spread let alone spread them intentionally without fearing infecting mm -hmm. themselves. So that got me thinking about why we're so invested in these narratives about intentional infection and why it is that just the rumor of a disease could have such profound changes. So for example, in my own work, it would be about tanking alliances like military alliances, trade alliances, jeopardizing the economic viability of a colony. We can never prove that people were actually intentionally spreading disease, even if they were, but they were certainly spreading rumors that disease was coming and that would have huge effects. And it's even a form of like propaganda, like you've talked about naming diseases after your enemies and stuff. Absolutely. And that's a thing that gets intentionally harnessed um, during tense times and in the absence of like strong, stable, central authority figures, like especially in a frontier space, these rumors take on a life of their own. And what you see a lot is that they're capitalizing on fears that already exist because a rumor is at its most effective when it seems to confirm something that you're already afraid of. Yeah, fear that something or someone is going to deliberately infect you is like the worst kind of fear that I find in my sources. And that fear has a really long legacy. Even like before were even able to carry out te technologically this intentional infection. So an article that really helped me out when I was working on methodology is by Adrian Mayer, and it's called The Nessus Shirt in the New World, Smallpox Blankets in History and Legend. And what it does is it traces the making of myths about intentional infection, and it traces it back to the classical periods. So that was super interesting for me within the context of this episode, because all of a sudden there are so many examples of and like written texts that date back to the classical period that are describing anthrax which is really cool which never happens and that means that it was a subject of concern and it would have definitely called upon these like ancient fears about poisoning and specifically poisoning through gifts so this article traces those origins and shows that how they metamorphose into a smallpox blankets kind of fear and furthers the mythology of a gift that's given in order to kill and that feeds into our our more modern fears about contamination i think and about poisoning through legitimate novel biological weapons like yeah, it's really scary i also think that even more so like this idea of this like propaganda or like intentional spread of disease is being used as a form of political rhetoric largely amongst 
I would argue, the conservative side of things, right? But it's being used as this weapon. And there's all these people that feel that the intentional spread of disease is being done as a form of control or a way to get more trade or, you know, dot, dot, dot. There's a lot of reasons. And I think that reflects directly on this idea of, I mean, even trading contaminated items, right? Just on like this much more global, technologically advanced stage. Mm-hmm. And clearly with anthrax, this is something that happened by accident. But adding that element of, yeah, we traded these contaminated pelts, but they did mm-hmm. it on purpose, um, adds a whole other layer of fear to it. And when you add, again, this other thing that I love to talk about, like the especially horrifying aspects of diseases that are that are disfiguring like that it's just layer upon layer of very primal specifically human fears about our own mortality and how we die and whether we get to choose Mm. i love that how we die and if we get to choose that got dark i think it's so compelling that okay not compelling it's informative to me that we've mechanized this naturally occurring illness to become so threatening that people literally thought it was a poison says a lot about you know the world we talk about memory quite a lot on this podcast mainly because i keep shoving it down everyone's throats (laughs) and i find it amazing that we somehow lost anthrax it's literally biblical probably even if you're thinking about it in terms of the episodes we've already done so like spanish flu totally forgotten we're not quite sure why And then syphilis, like we obviously remember it. We think of it as a disease of the past, but it's particularly horrifying. And then we have cholera, which is super present in our popular culture. And it features as this setting and all of these things we've been consuming our entire lives. But anthrax doesn't have that kind of, I want to call it cultural baggage, but I feel like that's not accurate. Well, I think the baggage part is actually true because it, it... The only context I know of it in is 2001 mailings, but it almost became this joke, right? Like Mm. I distinctly remember making probably misguided jokes about like powders in envelopes. This was a thing. It was a trope, but it wasn't talked Mm. about in this like serious context of like an illness or arguably even as Mm bioterrorism to me. I didn't really think of it in that context. Well, in light of that, tell me something that would make a normal person laugh. (laughs) Okay, well, as you may know, in the UK, lockdown restrictions have eased a little bit since last weekend. And today I went on my first socially distanced hangout and it was really nice. My social skills are gone. We had a fantastic chat and um, it took us about a half hour to really remember how to make eye contact, which was interesting. She was a good sport about it. We were both in the same zone, so it was fine. My hurry is that it finally got a little bit warmer here and there was some sunlight. And actually last night when the sun finally hit our balcony, it was warm out. We sat in the sun and ate like very summery, fresh cheesecake. And it was really lovely. That sounds like the dream. It was the dream. Wow, anthrax has been a true journey. (laughs) I learned a lot. I've been transported. We hope you learned a lot. We do. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>